Brian Barnett is just a regular guy. He's not a doctor. He has no legal license in any field of mental health nor emotional health. Brian Barnett merely shares the insights he has gained from his personal experiences for anybody who may choose to use such information as they individually and personally choose while accepting full responsibility for their own individual thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. Brian Barnett assumes no responsibility whatsoever for anybody's individual choice to expose himself or herself to any information that Brian Barnett shares. And by listening to this program, you are acknowledging that you and only you are responsible for your own thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. Happy Thursday, everybody. Welcome to The Last Symptom. We have a ton of stuff to talk about today regarding boundaries with a few other things sprinkled in. Since today's episode is so information heavy, I'm not going to spend any time jawing around on other things and telling stories and that sort of thing. The only thing I want to mention before we get started is my website of resources at thelastsymptom.com. I encourage you to visit and make use of what you find there. And if you're so inclined, please make a donation while you're there to support my overall body of work, which includes this podcast. I got this bit of uh, correspondence regarding the differences between regret and shame. I thought it was pretty astute of the writer. She had heard me talk on past episodes about how I regretted things. I regretted this and that from my past. And she wanted to know the difference between that and shame. How do you know one is not the other? So I'm glad she mentioned it because in those past episodes, when I've talked about things I regret, I chose that wording very specifically to explain my feelings on on those past events. Here's what she says. Hey, Brian, I re-listened to episode 36 about changes you've noticed since healing and had a couple of questions. You admitted to having regrets about things you said in a relationship. Would you please explain the difference between shame and regret? So I explained it to her like this. Let's say that you're preparing a meal for, for some friends. You're cooking. And you think, you know, this probably already has enough salt in it. But I'm tempted to add just a bit more, just a little bit more. And after a moment, you decide, yeah, I am going to put in just a little bit more salt. And so you sprinkle some in. An hour later, you're sitting with your friends, and as you bite into the food, you realize it would have been better if you had just not added that last bit of salt at all. (laughs) You regret doing it. If given another opportunity, you would not add the salt. This is regret. If given another opportunity, I would do it differently. That's it. That's all there is to regret. If given another opportunity, I would do it differently. If you hate yourself for having added the salt, that is shame. If you bite into the food, it's too salty. And now you're imagining all your guests eating that food. And you're imagining them thinking, my God... This person cannot cook to save her life. And now you're feeling uh, humiliation inside of yourself. And you're hating yourself. God, why did I do that? When it's shame, what you're thinking is, 
The reason I added too much salt is because I am a lost cause. There's something wrong with me. I'm just stupid. I'm stupid. That's why I added that extra salt. That's shame. Regret is recognizing the thing in context. If I had another opportunity, I'd do it differently. In the context of. But the reality is I can't change the past. I'm a normal person. I naturally make mistakes. And I didn't know then what I know now. And I'll do it different next time. <laughs> you see, there's no bad feelings. Internal bad feelings directed at yourself when it's just regret. The regret happens in the context of reality. In the, the reality of the situation. that you, You're just a normal person. <laughs> And not everything you do is going to be perfect. Regret isn't kicking yourself, especially once time has gone by. Although in everyday loose informal talk, we might express it that way. But as I've explained in the past, what healthy people can get away with in informal talk, the emotionally unhealthy person would do better to think a little bit longer on. You see, the emotionally unhealthy person has distorted perspective to begin with, and usually does not see the reality of informal common expressions as not representing the true nature of things. I'll give you an example. Triggers. Oh, that triggered me. Oh, I got triggered by that. An emotionally healthy person can use that terminology because they know that it's slang. It doesn't truly represent the, the real nature of what is happening in that situation. It's just common, informal talk. But as you know, if you've listened to where I explained that the concept of triggers in, or in the sense of recovery and in emotional unhealth and in what's actually going on inside of you is bullshit. So it is not helpful at all for emotionally unhealthy people to use that term even informally. Because their, their perspective on that, on that matter is already completely distorted. So to break free from that, you got to stop using that terminology altogether. There is no such thing as triggers. Emotionally healthy people, even when they use that terminology, know this already. So there really is no more to regret than, if I could do that over again, I would. In the context of, I can't change the past. I'm a normal person. I naturally make mistakes. I didn't know then what I know now. person does not feel bad about themselves. Regret doesn't make you feel bad about you yourself. In episode 37, what I talked about was the differences between guilt and shame. So, I regret <laughs> that in that episode, I didn't include regret in there. What's the difference between guilt, shame, and regret. So maybe in a future episode we can do that. Do I feel bad about myself for not having included that? No. <laughs> but uh, recovery really depends on you being able to distinguish clearly in your mind the differences between these things. You should be able, when you feel shame, you should be able to identify it immediately. It's not that difficult. With a couple weeks of practice, you could do it. Same thing with guilt. Oh, I recognize this is guilt. There's no question about it. Oh, I recognize this is shame. There's no question about it. Ah, oh, I recognize this as regret. No question about it. See, then you can 
uh, know what to do in these situations if you have to make adjustments or whatever in your thinking. All right, second important question I was asked this week. How long does it take to recover from borderline personality disorder? My answer to this is that uh, I'd say, now you know this is a relative question because everybody's circumstances are different, people are different, but to give you an idea, I would say that any amount of time between two to eight years would be a reasonable time frame. Two to eight years. It could take longer. It could take less. What I can tell you for a certainty regarding the amount of time it takes to recover from borderline personality disorder is that it depends on four overwhelmingly important factors. What are the top four factors that the length of time of your recovery depends on? Number one, each individual's level of sincerity in wanting to get better. So has the person hit rock bottom yet? If not, then it's not a sure thing that they'll ever get better. Because personal sincerity in approach is a non-negotiable requirement. Recovery cannot happen without it. At all. Not at all. Progress can't happen without it. Not at all. So I often talk about the fact that my intended audience are people who are already primed and ready to do the work. They're already coming to me sincere or desperate mentally and emotionally. They are ready to hear what I have to say. Until that happens, there's nothing I can do for anybody. Recovery really is an individual accomplishment. I can't do it. I can't help you unless you're already there, mentally and emotionally, sincere in your approach. However, as I explained in episode 39 of this podcast, I believe it is possible some people might reach the same level of sincerity by taking different routes and might, might get to the same point of pure, genuine sincerity and seriousness without having to hit rock bottom first. However, no matter if there are varying ways to arrive at the same point of complete, genuine sincerity, rock bottom, hitting rock bottom, is the only certain way to achieve it. I hope that's clear. It's desperation, you know, that's what it is. You're just, nothing else matters. You get to a point where nothing else matters. I gotta fix this. I gotta fix it. And the reason why that's so important is because for the first time ever, because of your desperation, which has led you to genuine sincerity, you're willing for the first time to genuinely consider things that you would have never been willing to open your mind and heart up to before. Number two, remember we're talking about the top four factors that you that the length of your recovery depends on. Number two, does the person have access to accurate information on this subject? 90% or more of information on the subject of borderline personality disorder is full of misinformation and lies. 
you know, don't quote me on the figure. It's just a rough estimate based on my personal experience. But misinformation equals misdirection. Misdirection equals time lost and possible frustration that results in ultimately, possibly, just giving up altogether. Uh, you know, I get uh, correspondence from people all the time who say, you know, I, had, I was recommended your podcast. It was recommended to me, and uh, I just wasn't interested because I had gone through, the, you know, 20 years of consuming all these resources and information on the subject, and when the person was telling me about your information, I just thought, yeah, it's just more of the same. It's just more of the same. Are you starting to see why I get so angry at the professional community and at other voices on the subject of borderline personality disorder? Because in many cases, they're doing more harm than good. If you have a book, all right, and 80% of it is factual and 20% of it is bullshit, do you see how the bullshit undoes all the good that the 80% accurate information provides? Because it, it misdirects you. It turns you away in the wrong direction. And what happens? You go on and go on and you go on and you reach a dead end. Now what are you feeling? You're feeling disillusioned. Disillusionment is a killer. Because disillusionment says, God, I put in all of this energy and all of this time. And for what? For nothing. Well, I'm not going to make that mistake again. So that's number two. That determines the length of your recovery. Do you have access to accurate and accurate information on this subject? Misinformation equals misdirection. Misdirection equals time lost and possible frustration that results ultimately in possibly just giving up altogether. Accurate, accurate, accurate information is what one needs. You don't usually see me writing or talking about just education being the, the cure to borderline personality disorder. No, unfortunately, I have to put the qualifier in there of accurate education because so much of the education out there is not accurate. Number three, stability. How stable is one's living arrangement, job, income, etc.? Instability in one's life complicates the process of recovery. In my circumstances, my life was ridiculously complicated and unstable. And yet, I managed genuine recovery, nevertheless, in seven years. I think I could have done it in two years if I wasn't job hopping and house hopping and state hopping and uh, struggling so much to just to pay the basic necessities of life. Nevertheless, I managed it in seven years. So how stable is your life? You know, you might be looking at two years for, for full, genuine recovery. I would say to anything earlier than two years is probably um, not realistic. Just because once you have all these epiphanies and you learn all these things, they have to be uh, 
put to practice out in out in the real world, out in real life, you know, you'll you'll start to see the you'll have these huge epiphanies, and then these epiphanies have to be tested against real life, and some of that is just routine and um, time, you know, practice. Number four, determining your length of recovery time, and this will lead us right into the today's uh, main topic. Number four is somebody important to that person creating concrete boundaries for the person and also concretely enforcing those boundaries. Is that person, the, the loved one creating boundaries, is that person emotionally healthy themselves? If the person creating boundaries is not emotionally healthy, the boundaries probably won't be either, nor will their approach be to enforcing them. So, that's what leads us into the main topic today, and this is a topic that's going to go on into next week, so I hope that you'll listen closely to this one and uh, tune back in on uh, Thursday, next Thursday. Now, we can't start a conversation about boundaries without first explaining why they matter. You see, you won't find any inner fortitude to make and enforce boundaries if you don't fully understand what they are or why they're necessary. This is part one of the discussion, and next week we'll get into the subject even more deeply. Now, I know what you want to hear about what is the, the best way to help your the person you care about. I know what you want to hear. But I can't tell you that. What you want is for me to tell you specific things that you can do for your loved one to relieve or fix their borderline personality disorder. If this is what you're hoping for, well, then we need to have a discussion about what recovery is and what makes it work. The magic ingredient, the thing that makes recovery possible at all, is something called self-initiation. Self-initiation. Without self-initiation, it doesn't really matter what you nag the other person to do, what you pressure them into doing, shame them into doing, beg them into doing. The best result you're ever going to get with this approach is a person who goes through the motions to appease you, but does not ever really achieve anything. This approach actually leads to an entire lifetime of coping with the disorder and simply trying to get by. And as you know, I'm not about coping and getting by. I'm about fixing, eliminating, authentically. Perhaps you, as the, the person who cares about somebody with borderline personality disorder, Perhaps you think that if you beg the person to say, go to therapy, that once they get there, the magical and wise therapist will be so skilled and so convincing 
that they will break through to your loved one and have an authentic effect. This is not going to happen. If you're one of the people who think this way, I'm here to tell you that all of your expectations and hope are built on false pretenses. And this is uh, another complaint that I have about the professional community. Even after they've determined that a person has not reached genuine sincerity in their approach, they will keep cashing those checks. They'll keep making appointments for that person, calling them in, and keep cashing their checks, even though they know, even though the, the professional knows that that person cannot possibly make any improvement whatsoever. Why not? Because they're not sincere in their approach. They have to reach that level of sincerity in their approach. Otherwise, it's all for naught. As I explained at the beginning of this, this episode, genuine recovery can only happen when you, you, the person with the disorder, reaches a point where you say, all right, I'm willing to think and do things that I've never been willing to do before. So when I get messages and, you know, I interact with people and I determine that they're not sincere, I, I don't even waste an, another minute with them because they have to go off. They have to suffer a bit more when they come back to me and I perceive, aha, this person really is disgusted now. And they're ready. They are genuinely ready. Now, now I can help that person. I can't do it before then. Let me tell you that there is not a therapist on the face of this earth who is skilled enough to make another person magically sincere if they are not sincere. So when we talk about self-initiation, this is really what we're talking about, reaching a stage of genuine sincerity. So go ahead, continue nagging and begging and obligating, even though you are wasting your time. And, you know, a lot of people listening are going to cling to this approach anyway, and there's nothing I can do about it. Why? Because just as a loved one is not sincere when she attends therapy at another's behest, many are not being sincere when they ask me the question, what can I do to help this person I care about? They're not, they're not sincere. You see, they have a type of answer already in mind, a preferred expectation that they're willing to hear. And anything that falls outside this realm will be rejected by them out of hand. So I can talk, but it'll be like the wind lazily passing through one ear and out the other. Furthermore, the behaviors of begging, nagging, and obligating make the concerned party feel immediately better. That's the purpose it serves. It makes you feel immediately better. It makes you feel like you're not just standing around, twiddling your thumbs, while watching somebody you care about destroy themselves or continue to suffer the same cycle over and over again. Perhaps you don't think of your specific approach in terms of begging, nagging, and obligating. But when anybody other than the person who needs to recover is pushing, 
pushing for a certain action. Those terms describe the reality of what is happening, of what you're doing. So maybe not pleasant, but accurate. What I want to help you understand is that wisely and patiently setting the stage for your loved one to self-initiate is not just standing idly by. It's not an example of doing nothing. Rather, it's an example of wisely handling the situation in the only way, the only way, that has a possibility of bearing out the results you wish to see. When I was dating my ex-wife, we decided we were going to read a book together, even though we were separated by several hundred miles. I lived in Columbus, Ohio at the time, and she was in Philadelphia. We dated long distance for, for about a year. So we picked out a book, The House of the Seven Gables by Nathaniel Hawthorne. Each night, we were going to read the same pages at the same time. Then, we would discuss it during our evening phone conversation. So we talked on the phone every day, and what we had planned was I'd read such and such pages, she'd read the same pages, and then on our nightly phone call, we'd discuss those pages. Now, I was engaged in this. In other words, I was sincere in my approach for about the first three pages. <laughs> After that, it was a horrible chore. After three pages, I was only doing it to please her. My heart was not in it at all. I found the book incredibly boring. And it was simply not the sort of thing I enjoyed. So what I resorted to immediately before each phone call every night was that I'd quickly scan the required pages, make a quick mental note of some character names, a couple of events that I could reference, and then I faked my part of our conversation about the story. And you know, I got pretty good at this, of grabbing just the right number of details to pass off a convincing participation. Now let me ask you a question. How much of the story of the House of the Seven Gables do you think I can relate to you from memory right now? Nothing. And I mean nothing. The following statement sounds like a paradox, but it's not a paradox at all. When you have context, I have read the House of the Seven Gables from cover to cover, and I have also not read a single page of it. <laughs> because what's involved in reading? More than simply just sounding out words, right? Your mind has to be absorbed in it. The messages and mental images need to be allowed to flow into your mind. The story has to get through to you and have an effect on you, have a genuine effect on you. So are you able to make another person read something? No, you're not able to do this. You may think you have this ability, but you don't. The best you have the ability to do is make them read it in the sense that they will run their eyes over the text and speak the words there. But to actually read, to absorb and take in the message? 
Not you, not the president, not the entire United States military has the power to make another person do something as seemingly simple as this. If they don't choose it for themselves, it won't happen. Only each individual, himself or herself, has that power over him or herself. What's the one ingredient that's missing from my experience with House of the Seven Gables, which would completely change the, the whole nature of that experience? Self-initiation. Sincerity. Genuineness. If you take any of these things and you go back in time and you insert them into me, at the time I was reading, <laughs> I say that in air quotes, reading House of the Seven Gables, the end result would be entirely different. Whether or not I still hated the book at the end is irrelevant. As long as I self-initiated and read the book out of sincere want, my want, then the book would be absorbed by me nevertheless. As things are right now, I can't relate a single solitary detail about that classic work of literature. And I read the whole thing. So now let's think about this for a moment. You want to help somebody with borderline personality disorder, and yet everything you've been doing up until now has instead been doing what? It's been shielding them from ever having to self-initiate. Think about that. Everything you've been doing, and are probably currently doing, has been shielding them from ever having to self-initiate. The one thing, the one thing that can bring about genuine recovery, and you've been shielding them from reaching it. So have you been a help to them? Or have you been a contributing factor in their ongoing emotional unhealth? I think the answer is clear even to those who may not wish to see it. The objective for you then, upon realizing that your mentality and approach toward your loved one has been wrong all along, should now be that you only behave in ways that encourage self-initiation and that you avoid all behaviors that disrupt their path to self-initiation. Put simply, if indeed your primary concern, genuinely, is to help them, you must allow them to suffer. This isn't going to be easy for you. For a lot of people, that statement is going to seem very counterintuitive. After all, isn't it their suffering, which you have already witnessed, that's led you to desperately search for ways to help them in the first place? Nonetheless, while never a pleasant thing, suffering is a beneficial necessity in terms of recovery. This is often referred to as hitting rock bottom. Hitting rock bottom is often a crucial, defining event necessary before anybody will truly reach a state of authentic self-initiation and then muster up the sincerity to tackle what they are dealing with in a genuine way.
Until now, every time your loved one has suffered, you've stepped in to cushion the blow, to comfort them, to deflect the full brunt of consequences of their distorted, unhealthy thinking from affecting them. This hasn't been very nice of you. Because every time you do this, you're delaying the one thing from occurring, which could be their ultimate salvation, self-initiation, total desperation, sincerity. This is going to be extremely difficult for most people to follow through on it, and I would wager that out of a hundred people, only one might truly have the sort of insight and courage that it requires. See, because everybody else is telling you, oh, you got to keep it together, you got to keep it together. You got to stand by them. You got to support them. Mm-mm, you're doing the wrong thing. That's why I say, out of a hundred people, only one might truly be able to see through all of that chatter and lie and have the insight and courage that is truly required. And my ex-wife was one of those people. My ex-wife, Diana, truly loved me. She loved me completely, unconditionally, and utterly selflessly. I'm not talking about fake pop song type love. I'm talking about authentic love. When events in my life led my emotional unhealth to come out into the open for the first time ever, and the extent of it become clear, Diana made some hard, selfless decisions in the interest of giving me the best chance to truly recover once and for all. And she did it at great cost to her own wants. She didn't want to divorce me. She wanted us to grow old together. She adored my weaknesses and insecurities. She saw through my defects, and she loved my heart. Even while dealing with the heart-wrenching agony of my infidelity, she looked through my behaviors, saw my heart, and loved what was there. Here's a card she gave me sometime after I had confessed that I had been unfaithful to her. The front of the card has a picture of a boy, a little boy, with a cape on. And the front of the card says, uh, you have what it takes to do anything you want to do. And the inside of the card says, well, maybe not everything. <laughs> I'm sorry, but I just don't see invisibility happening. Just about anything else, though. I believe in you. And here's what she wrote on the card. She wrote, and I love you. This is going to be hard for me to get through. <clears throat> I'm so proud of the changes you've made in the last year, and I know that things will only get better. I love you bunches and want with all my heart for us to be happy and still be having lots of fun together when we're 80 or when I'm 80 and you're 79. Love you, Diana. So if she loved me unconditionally, why have we now been divorced for about eight years? Because genuine because genuine 
unconditional love gives the target of that love what they truly need for their long-term well-being over what is preferred. I took my daughter to a man not long ago, and I allowed that man to stick a a three-inch needle into her leg. And I sat by and I watched without interfering while he caused her this pain. The man was a doctor, and the needle was a flu shot. I allowed and even encouraged this temporary suffering because I love my daughter tremendously. And love moves me to do hard things that cause her temporary pain in the interest of her greater long-term well-being. Diana set concrete boundaries for me that I kept crossing, and she followed through on the excruciating enforcement of those boundaries. Diana didn't want to have to enforce those boundaries. She hoped with desperate hope that I would come to my senses before it was too late and that I would not cross those boundaries. But unfortunately, I had to suffer more than either one of us would have ever imagined was possible or necessary. My, my mark for outright panicked desperation, that imaginary line that I had to reach, my pain tolerance was unusually high. By the time I did get there and then turned around to look, Everything, everything I had loved was forever lost, including Diana. But the result, but the result was ultimately emotional health. Here I am, impossibly now an authority on this subject, helping others. Would I be here if Diana had given in to her preferences? If she had helped me by shielding me from the full consequences of my emotional unhealthy thinking? If she had not set boundaries and held me to them? If her idea of help was to stand by my side no matter what I did or failed to do? No, I would not be here. I'd still be wading out in that vast, lonely water of emotional unhealth. Only from my ex-wife's wisdom and courage was I able to suffer enough loss and pain to reach a point to self-initiate, to become truly sincere for the first time in my life of first identifying and then ridden myself of borderline personality disorder once and for all. To become the one person who, incredibly and against all odds, has broken a cycle that has run rampant through both sides of my family for probably generations upon generations.
I'm now a new beginning for all my descendants. But even if I were to go on to have no descendants whatsoever, I am awake and free. So don't let any of this make you believe that you're helpless. Diana didn't simply kick me away to fend for myself in my extreme unhealth and desperation. She did something that I encourage you to learn. She set and then enforced concrete boundaries. And she also did another thing. She facilitated my recovery in another way. What does this mean to facilitate? Well, it means to wait and watch, and whenever your loved one makes a move or a decision in the right direction, you step in and facilitate. You make the follow-through easier for that self-initiation. So you allow them to self-initiate, and if it's emotionally healthy in nature, constructive in nature, you jump in and you celebrate and you facilitate. So Diana was always waiting with phone numbers, plane tickets, names, uh, lists of clinics, times and locations for support groups, every time I expressed an interest in reaching out for help. Now, here's the important part. She didn't do those things for me. That is to say, she didn't do the work in place of me. I had to self-initiate, and then she stepped in to celebrate and support. So it was I who was really doing the work and putting forth the effort, and she was facilitating those efforts. Now, what happens if the, the loved one self-initiates in the wrong direction? Well, you do not interfere whatsoever, except to enforce your boundaries, which means you allow them to suffer the full excruciating consequences and pain of that behavior. Again, this isn't doing nothing. Indeed, it's doing the only thing you have any power or control over to do, and which offers the absolute best chance to give them what they truly need over what all involved might prefer. On April 6, 2011, Diana wrote me the final letter that I would ever receive from her. And here's how that letter ended. I know that you disagree with my feelings about divorce. I know that it scares and saddens you. And I know that you have nightmares about it. I cannot support you as a wife right now. You will not be alone. I want to set up boundaries that I feel comfortable enforcing. I want us to be able to help each other's recovery where we can. If I need to know details or how you could have done what you did or be able to talk about it. I want us to heal rather than damaging each other further. And the way you deal with this sets up how I will feel about things in the future. I know you worry about me meeting someone else. All I can say to that is that it would be a huge mistake for me to get into a relationship with someone else anytime soon. Not only would it be stupid of me, but it would be unfair to whoever the other person was since I have so much pain and so many trust issues to work through and sorting them out will take a long time. I think sometimes that you are really worried that you will be the one. To find someone else. I believe with all my heart that if it is a good, 
healthy thing for us to be together, that there's a possibility that it will happen one day, but only when we are individually healthy. I'm very proud and hopeful because of the progress you've made so far and because you finally seem to be on the right road. I know that we will face things that will be difficult and sad. I hope that you will use all the resources you now have available to you to do the best you can at your recovery. You have love in your life and a lot of people who are pulling for you. I hope that you will be the hero you always wanted to be and prove to everyone that you can win over this. With hope, Diana, if you think the work I'm doing today to help others has anything to do with becoming the hero Diana thought I would be one day (laughs) to take this horrible, unbearably painful event from my life story, and wrestle it into something great and positive, then you're correct. But who is the real hero? Isn't it clear? Yes, it is. Diana is the hero. She had the courage to break my heart and save me, all in one courageous swoop. And now look, the fruits of her heroism are being borne out in the work I'm doing here. Do you have such courage and wisdom hiding somewhere within you? I think you do. Uh, You wouldn't be here otherwise. Next Thursday, we're going to get into the nuts and bolts of boundaries. We'll discuss what makes them work and why they are your only tool for helping those you love. We'll also discuss how boundaries obeys and works in harmony with another fundamental principle to emotional health that I've often told you about, individual inherent rights, responsibility, and authority. That's all for this week. A lot to digest here. Please think it over carefully between now and the next episode so that in the next episode you're primed to accept and fully understand and appreciate next week's information. Before I go, I just want to mention my website of resources again and encourage you to visit thelastsymptom.com. If you're so inclined, please make a donation to support my overall body of work, which includes this podcast. Thanks, everybody. This is Brian Barnett signing off. As always, thanks for listening. Have a great week.